Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out. G'day everybody, Aaron Noonan here. Welcome to the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Timken, a world leader in engineered bearings and mechanical power transmission products and services. Well, we're on the road to Mount Panorama. Well, we're not actually on the road to Mount Panorama this year. Normally we would be. We'll be on the couch for the 2020 edition of The Great Race, but in the lead up, we've got plenty of great podcast Bathurst content for you. And today it is our Bathurst Q&A. You ask the Q's, we give the A's. I'm not the only one giving the A's. Will Dale, you're here to give some A's as well. Uh, That could be all taken very incorrectly. But the reality is we've got piles of questions, and I think we've got all the answers today too. Yeah. G'day, Nudes. Yeah, looking through our notes, I reckon we should have ticked pretty much all the boxes. So, um, yeah, let's hook in. Righto, let's hook in. Uh, Jacob Grant, first up. With GRM being a wildcard for this year's Bathurst, as we record this, there's an asterisk next to that. Uh, mm. I think they've been approved as a wild card, but one of their drivers doesn't have permission for a super license, Nathan Hearn, so we'll wait and see. But he says, I've always wondered, the car from 2010 that Lee Holdsworth and David Bernard drove together that led for half the race, where has that car gone? Now, of course, Craig Lanz and Mark Scaife won the race in 2010, 10 years ago, 1-2 for Team Vodafone. Uh, but David Bernard, remember he got in that huge scrap with Lowndes for the lead and Lowndes was getting massively pissed on the radio because I think he expected that Bernard should let him pass because he was faster, but it was a genuine race for the lead and mm. Holdsworth and Bernard led, I think it was something like, it was like 70-odd, 80-odd laps in that year's race. So I didn't realise that till I was actually looking in our um, A1 data results database the other day. I was looking at something to do with that race and was looking at the lap counts and went, oh, <laughs> Did not remember that that car led so many laps. And it was 81. It was 81. It was half the race. It all came, was that the year it all came undone very late in the race and at pit entry? Got a drive through. Um, Mm. Sped in pit lane. I think it was when Bernard was coming in to hand over to Holdsworth for the final driver change. And And it was. uh, They finished seventh in the end. So uh, uh, one that got away. The answer for Jacob there, that car is still around. That was one of the last VE. Project Blueprint cars that GRM put together, but um, uh, it's with our sport race engineering. And most recently, we saw that in Emily Duggan's hands in the Kumo V8 Touring Car slash Super 3 Series uh, last year. So uh, that car, she's still around, as are a lot of those cars from that era that uh, are perfect cars to run in, in Super 3 these days. Um, we'll see a few of them going up to the mountain as well. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Some of the older version cars that uh, in recent times have confirmed. We, we ran a story on our website last week that got a lot of attention. The, the VS Commodore, uh, that was a, a new VS built for the development series by Mike Quinn for Ron Searle, the late Ron Searle in 2001. Uh, that car's not competed at Bathurst since 2002 in the non-championship Konica Series race. And it's entered and going to run in Super 3 at Bathurst. So you'll have the scenario where you have Super 2 cars at the front of the pack that are, you know, maybe a year or two or three old car of the future chassis uh, with a VS Commodore that was built in 2001 on the same <laughs> grid. Who would have thought? Well, at this rate, depending on whether um, whether he gets his super license, there'll be a car racing that's older than Nathan Herney. 
Follow that one away. Yeah, uh, nice, nice. <laughs> Next question from Brenton Thorpe. Which driver has taken the most Bathurst races to finally win, super touring races included? Well, I was on the podium when this man achieved this. 2014, Super Cheap Auto Bathurst 1000. A late call up to host the podium presentation for uh, S Sleuth. Uh, that was Paul Morris. 22nd start in the great 20- race that year in 2014. And promptly, has never been back in the 1,000, retired as a, uh, a Bathurst 1,000 winner from V8 Supercar Racing. Obviously, he's driven in uh, other categories and other forms of the sport since then. But uh, that was yeah, 22 times. Really, uh, he should have won in 97. But I was going to say, he, w- he was a winner for about an hour or so after yeah. the 97 race. Yeah, and that really shouldn't have happened. They should have put Morris back in the BMW. If you don't know the, the backstory, he and Craig Baird crossed the line first to win the two-litre race in 1997 in the Diet Coke BMW that started from pole. Baird drove it across the line but had driven uh, – it, it exceeded his maximum continuous driving time, which was, was it three hours, three and a half yeah. hours off the top of my head. There was a bit of an argument that they were trying to go through the wording of the rule and argue that continuous – well, when he stopped in the pits, he's not driving the car. He's sitting there having a drink or waiting for them to change the tyres. But, of course, that's not the way that it's deemed in the, the rules and the way that it all works out. And they were, they were turfed in the second Diaco car of Jeff and David Brabham scored the win. But I really reckon that had they put Morris back in that car, even if it took them a little bit longer at that last pit stop, and I think the dude has made comment about that in recent times that, the, of course, Craig Baird was a Kiwi uh, the team at the time was run by Lyle Williamson, Kiwi, uh, under the International Motorsport banner. So I think Paul made a mention somewhere in recent times of that that, that was all about a Lyle Williamson call. You know, the Kiwis putting the, having the Kiwi in the car at the end, uh, but even if they put the dude in and it cost them another five seconds, ten seconds in a pit stop, uh, with the way that race worked out, he probably had the fastest car there and he would have still won. So Well, they blitzed the Audis in the final send. I mean, they... Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. So... Those yeah, Audis had wouldn't have been close. Those Audis didn't have the outright pace to go with those BMWs. So, uh, so Brenton, that's the answer. Paul Morris, twenty-two starts in the one thousand. Of course, Luke Yulden had a pretty good number going by the time he won in twenty seventeen with Dave Reynolds. That was, I think, his eighteenth start. So he was starting to get closer and closer. Next question, Shane Sawyer. Oh, two-parter. We like a two-parter. Will, <laughs> why the shift from the five-liter Holden engine to the Chevy engine? in the mid-90s, and is it cheese and ham or ham and cheese? Uh, I'll take the second part first. It's ham and cheese. Oh, I just agree. off the tongue a bit better. Correct. And the first part of the question, well, when these rules came into play in 1993, because, of course, there was no Ford V8 that had been previously used, although Ford teams were allowed to dip into Ford US's motor, extensive motorsport parts program for their engines, and it was felt that, well... Holden teams should be allowed to do the same. So they were. Of course, as we all know, a lot of teams persisted with the old 308 Holden V8 and um, it went to victory at Bathurst that year instead of the Chev. Yeah, it wasn't just the standard plain Jane. Well, it was 304 no. really, wasn't it? The, yeah, it was The Holden 5-litre V8 engine. But, of course, Larry Perkins did a lot of work with Holden in uh, the homologation of, of, that car, of that engine beyond the... He was the only one to, to stick with the Holden, but in the end, he had to... Uh, roll across to the Chevrolet in the following year of, of 94. And I agree, it is ham and cheese, by the way. Mm. Uh, Chris Holborn, I'll fire another one here. 
Uh, Bathurst in 89, Larry Perkins was at HRT and the cars had some very distinct LP features. Five stud wheels, the tower of power switch stand, etc. Did these cars have HRT or Perkins Engineering chassis designation? Uh, I think the answer is yes. Because <laughs> there was one of each, wasn't there? Well, in a way, because I guess we need to clean this up. So, Chris, Larry Perkins wasn't at HRT. Larry mm. Perkins that year was HRT. Mm. So the factory HSV, Tom Walkinshaw, John Crennan uh, program, they had the right to run the race team. They farmed it out for the second year to Larry for Sandown, Bathurst and Adelaide. And that's the debut of the Holden Racing Team banner. But they were very much Perkins Engineering uh, run and built and operated cars. Uh, the car that Larry drove with Thomas Mazura at Sandown Bathurst was a brand new Perkins engineering car. And the other car that was the Neil Crompton number seven car was an ex-TWR car that had been refettled and had some modifications from Larry's team at, uh, at their workshop here in Melbourne. So, uh, yeah, so they were, well, but the funny thing was that Larry's car was a Perkins car that later was sold and became Wynn Percy's HRT car the following year. So it got a rebirthday chassis number from Perkins <laughs> to HRT. And uh, uh, the other car that was the Crompton car was a, a TWR chassis numbered car. So, uh, so a little bit of both there, a bit of cross-pollination to answer Chris's question. Next question from Glenn Cawthorn. Did anyone save the car that Dick hit the rock with and the one that went into the trees? Now... The one with the trees that went into the trees during Hardy's Heroes in 1983, that's gone. That is definitely oh, gone. Oh, no, it's still it. around. It's just in lots mm-hmm. of different pieces. It's no longer a complete car, let's okay, say. fair point. Fair um, point. The doors were taken off and a few of those were, like one of the doors I think is still with the Johnson family. One of them was in um, the Harris Motorsport collection for a while and went up for auction a yep. couple of years ago. Yep. Um, the rest of the car, however, was put through the brand new crusher at Sims metal in 1984 <laughs> and turned into paperweights. And occasionally you can see one of those pop up for sale on eBay. And I haven't seen one for quite some time, but mm. the last time I saw one, I swear the price tag was around the 1500 to $2,000 mark. So it's a famous paperweight. It's a famous paperweight. So that car's definitely gone, but mm. the rock car most definitely is not gone, but no one Correct. sees it. No, no one has really seen it since the end of its com- competition career because it was, of course, rebuilt by John Donnelly and John English and actually went lined up on the Bathurst grid in 1981, about 20 spots behind Dick. <laughs> <laughs> so that car actually competed through the rest of Group C at the Queensland races, well, usually in Queensland rounds and at Bathurst in John Donnelly's hands. Then after its last race in 1984, it was sold to a person who likes their privacy and has basically kept the car squirreled away in Queensland to this day. And it has not been seen, but we've been reliably informed that it does still exist. And it's been attempted at purchased by quite a few people. And I think Dick mm. himself is pretty keen to get his hands back on it, but the owner is most certainly not going to part with it for uh, love nor money. So that's a case of uh, waiting and seeing. Brendan mm. Baker. Next question. What happened? Oh, I remember this. What happened to Mark Winterbottom's barbecue car? Did it race again or not? And second part of the question, did Scott McLaughlin's qualifying lap last year count in the record books or not? So uh, I'll take the first bit. You take the second bit. It's probably the best yep. way to put this. Mark Winterbottom's barbecue car. So that was 2009. Remember the FPR 
Falcon that he drove with Steve Richards coming in a pit lane. The rear is the rear is on fire. I think <laughs> I think because the reason why I remember that line is I'm pretty sure it was an ad break at the time, and I Correct. was doing the world commentary feed. So when the commercials would air in that Channel Seven era, the vision still was being fed to our international broadcasters. So at the time, it would have been Crompo and Matty White, I would guess. And I sat next to them and I would commentate for the fill-in three, four, two and a half, whatever it was, minutes in the commercial break. And quite often, really good stuff happened in the ad breaks that they had to recall like coming back from the break with the, oh, this has just happened. Uh, but I, if you hear occasionally, they'll wheel out some of those old bits of vision and they've, they've used the original feed. So... Uh, idiot here has got his voice over some of that. So uh, that car, it caught on fire because they'd had some battery issues with it and they bolted another battery into the boot and it got loose and, of course, it ignited and Frosty barbecued himself on the way in. Now, that car most certainly raced again. In fact, it nearly won Bathurst three years later. That's the same chassis that David Reynolds drove, the Bottolo car in that 1967 tribute livery in the 50-year celebration race in 2012 with Dean Canto, uh, second to Jamie Winkup by, you know, what, two tenths or whatever it was crossing the line. So that car's around. It has been returned to the Reynolds Bathurst 2012 Bottolo uh, Firth Gibson 1967 Falcon livery, and it's with some owners in New South Wales. So the great news is that uh, that car lives on. It's it's not gone away. Indeed. And can confirm that Scotty's qualifying lap last year does not count in the record books because he was excluded or the car was excluded on the basis of its engine non-compliance with technical regulations. So it was excluded from the top 10 shootout where he set that phenomenally fast 203 and also from the qualifying session on Friday afternoon. However, his practice lap that he set on Thursday still stands, which was a 2037. And that was faster than Chas Mostert's second place shootout lap. So that technically is the fastest legal lap of Mount Panorama by a supercar in practice and qualifying. Yeah. And I often, we only really ever deal in qualifying records and race lap records. You can only set a lap record in a race, but obviously there is the fastest. Which I've never agreed with, but yeah, anyway. which the fastest all time time, if that's a term uh, mm. is the practice. But of course, Chas Mostert physically lined up second on the grid last year in the official record books, the way we score it, he is the pole sitter for the 2019 Bathurst 1000, even though he didn't get the check at the time, he didn't get to start on the actual pole position, uh, and it didn't give him the inside line for the first corner. So it's one of those weird quirks of history that we're just going to have to deal with. But he was excluded. The time was scrubbed. Uh, it's gone. It, uh, we know it happened. We saw it happen. You can note down the number in the notes, but it doesn't go in the main body of the text is probably the best way to describe it. And it's funny because that technically Tickford therefore had the first and second places on the grid after qualifying, but of course they didn't lock out the front row on race day. No, that's going to be an interesting one in quiz questions in the future. And uh, speaking of (laughs) Mathis trivia quiz from our last podcast, it's still open. We haven't closed entries yet. So you can still uh, enter for up to $450 worth of prize as well. 
reality is the best you can win on your own is 250 because that is first prize, $250 voucher to the V8 Sleuth online bookshop. Second prize is $150 voucher. And third is a $50 voucher. There's 20 questions. They all relate to Bathurst 1000 history. You can hit, The only place you can get the questions is in our previous episode of the podcast. So that's episode 70. You go to our website. You fill in the uh, form with your answers and your, your details to, to get into the draw. You can only enter once. You can't come back and have another go and change some of your answers and see if you can uh, jag a win. The winners will be the first three correct entries to be lodged via the entry form on our website. So go to v8sleuth.com.au and click on the story about the Bathurst 1000 Trivia Podcast. We might move that one. We'll back up the order uh, to be able to, to see it on the homepage. But if you go to the podcast section, you'll find our Bathurst 1000 Trivia Quiz Podcast. Uh, if no one gets all 20 right, which at the moment I don't think anyone has, has they? have they? They have not so okay. far, no. Not yet, but the prizes will go to those who get the most amount of correct answers in first. So if you uh, got your your answers in nice and fast and you were very good at getting uh, more of them right than not, then you're you're half a chance. Now, the entries close at 11.59pm on Friday, October the 9th. Winners will be announced in our Bathurst preview episode of the podcast, which drops on October 14. So you've got plenty of time to enter. And, And the other thing that's been awesome since the last podcast, Will, the official 2020 Super Cheap Auto Bathurst 1000 program is for sale via our V8 Sleuth online bookshop. We had to get more stock because <laughs> we sold out the first bunch that we got since last week. Such was the popularity, of course. Uh, a lot of fans don't go to the race. They're watching it on television. And a lot of fans this year who would go to the race uh, are unable to and will be watching on TV. So to have the program next to you is absolutely the thing you should have. Jump on our website, bookshop.v8sleuth.com.au to order yourself a copy. And we've always got a deal for our podcast listeners. So if you buy a copy of our Holden Racing the Lion book or our Bathurst uh, Going Global 12-hour book, you'll get a copy of the Bathurst program free as part of your package that we send out. All you've got to do is go to our website, bookshop.v8sleuth.com.au. Click on the two items in the cart. When you go to the checkout, type in the code free, F-R-E-E. That'll give you the program free. Check out, pay your money. We put in the mail. Happy days. You get books and magazines. And uh, let's see if we get anyone who gets 20 right. What is the best that anyone's got at the moment, Will, by the way? Uh, high teens. High teens. That's solid. Yeah. Uh, that's passable. Yeah. It's proven that there's been a couple of tricky questions <laughs> in there that, um, yeah, that a few people have gotten, but the majority have not gotten. So, um, yeah, try your best. Oh, one, one thing I will add that we have had a couple of reports from people who, when they've tried to enter, it's had a glitch and it's submitted answers of all A. If that happens, I know we said that, you know, your first entry is the one that the one that gets it done. If that does happen, enter again. Like we understand these things do happen. So yeah, yeah, we naturally don't expect anyone would have answered them all. A. I did that in year ten and it got me through. So <laughs> let me tell actually, you, it won't get you it won't, it won't help you win this one. That's for sure. I've seen the answers. I know they are not all A. If anyone's mm. thinking they might fluke a win, uh, we've got another question. Oh, actually, we've got lots of questions. In fact, this is our. Castrol question of the week and it comes from Matthew McDonald. Matthew asks, I would love to know the history of the chassis that Larry Perkins skinned back to VP spec for Bathurst because he thought the VP was better than the VR at the time. Ah, this was one of those great LP elements and we will go further into this and uh, 
many of you who listen to the podcast know we've done a deal with Larry and Jack Perkins to, in 2021, produce the official car history book of Perkins Engineering, and this car will be featured in it. But to give you the very quick uh, storyline on it, it was a VR Commodore in 1996, which was the current shape of the time. Because the Holden Racing Team dominated the Touring Car Championship, the Performance Review Committee of the time, the PRC, sounds like a class of rally car, actually, <laughs> uh, they decided to chop the front under trays out of VRs. Uh, was it 100 mil, 125 mil, something along those lines, uh, to try to bring them back to the pack. But as the other Holden team said, well, we're not the dominant ones. The HRT cars with the Bridgestone tyres are. And I remember Larry Perkins struggling at Sandown in 96 in the 500. He had a pack of cars right behind him. He, he drove a wide car. He didn't have any pace, but he managed to keep them behind him in the early stages. So Larry thought, hmm, VP's not uh, subject to those under-tray restrictions. So he converted his 1996 championship uh, Commodore that was new for that year of VR back to VP for Bathurst, which was a great thing. Smart idea. Standard oh, yeah. VP. It didn't quite pay off, but that was the reason why it happened. And he actually did drive that car as a VP later that year in New Zealand for the end of year uh, mobile sprints at Pukekohe and Wellington. They did return it to uh, later on VS spec for Russell Ingle to drive in the championship in 1998. And it's actually now undergoing restoration. It'll be restored not as the VP, obviously, to oh. go from VR back to VP. There's quite a bit of chopping and work that has to go on there. So VR, VS, Castrol, 97, 98 is the period that we'll see that car return to. But yeah, we've already started on work on that Perkins book and there's, there's pretty much 50 cars. So there's so much history and there's so many stories. And that story, the, the, the return of the future VP back to the future, whatever you want to call it, uh, will feature prominently. It's, it's a cool story. I was like, the two things that I remember quite vividly from of that whole thing. One, the fact that Ingle bunkered the car in the wet in the early stages of the race and cost them a lap. Um, and that is basically what took them out of the fight for a podium position because that car probably would have gone quite well had it not been for that unfortunate misstep. And the other thing I remember is um, the Stony cartoon when it was revealed that Larry was going to run the VP. <laughs> yes. And it's a cartoon of um, Brocky and Larry having a chat and Larry's standing there next to, um, standing next to um, the, like, the old 83. It was an 83, 83 VH. VH Marlborough Holden dealer team Commodore. And Brocky's going, Larry, isn't that my VH? And Larry's standing there in like a 70s flower shirt and big <laughs> bell-bottom flare saying, yep, and it's got a great undertray. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Classic Stoney line, the great John Stoneham. Uh, yeah, that's a ripper. Thanks, Matthew McDonald, for the question. That's our Castrol question of the week. And, of course, remember the Castrol is more than just oil. It's liquid engineering because Castrol provide the oils, the fluids, the lubricants for today and the future for every driver, every rider, and every industry. And you can follow Castrol on Facebook to stay across the latest in motorsport, exclusive comps, and much more. And, of course, you can get yourself on Rick Kelly's Castrol Mustang at Bathurst this year. Have you sent your photo in? I have not. I've been contemplating taking a photo of our dog, Bowie, but yeah, do it. I don't know, do it. Yeah, I don't know if he'd be into it. Yeah. He you doesn't have to I know. Oh, you got to ask his consent. No, you don't. You don't do. be one of those people in this modern world. Don't, 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 don't. Take a cute photo of you and your dog, put it on the side of a Bathurst 1000 race car, off you go. Job done. Next question. Okay. <laughs> Daz Emerson asks, winning car numbers of the Bathurst 1000 
Obviously, 05 has won plenty. Triple Eight has a few as well. But what car number has won the most? Daz, you're right. Daz is right. 05 has won plenty and Triple Eight has won let, more than a few. Let's not say exactly how many 05 has won, as that is a trivia question. Or do we, or do we offer this one up? No, as we're not giving anything. <laughs> Hell no. Let's not make this easy. Let's make people work for it. What we will tell you is that the number that has beaten both of those numbers is one. Seven times car number one has won the Bathurst 1000 uh, right back. I think the first one was Alan Moffat, wasn't it? 1977 uh, yeah. with Jackie X in the, the hard top. Triple uh, Eight has won six times, all with Craig Lowndes. And, of course, has another chance to uh, win another one in a few weeks' time alongside Jamie Winkup. There's actually a bit of a question mark over whether they'd run car Triple Eight that we asked the team because the entry list was released, was it last week? And the first thing I noticed was car 88 was Wing Cup and Lowndes. Of course, 88 is Wing Cup's regular number. But for Bathurst last year, given it's the team's traditional number, it's Craig's traditional number, uh, they're permitted to run the triple eight. A quick call to Jess Dane from triple eight to check. And she said, oh, no, that's a, that's a clerical error somewhere along the line. <laughs> they will most definitely be running car triple eight in, in the race on October 18. Zero five, I'm not going to tell you how many wins it had. But not as many as many people might think. Mm. 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 Yes. Next question. We've got through one page, but we've got about three more. The questions <laughs> were flowing this week. Thanks, everyone, for sending them in. Uh, next week on the podcast, we are going to run the ruler over uh, the full field for 2020 for the Super Cheap Auto Bathurst 1000. We'll run through who's who in the zoo, who's in what car, analyze the form, take a look at some of the stats and facts that you might not have picked up along the way that only really we could come up with with our crazy little brains and all the stuff that. We spit out of our little database. And this is one we had to consult the database for, Will, from Elliot Beaton. Which manufacturer has competed in the most Bathurst 1000 slash 500s without any success? And when you think about it, the answer is obvious, but it's probably not as obvious when you stop and consider that their cars never really fought for outright victory. And that's why the answer is so obvious. Correct. I mean, you can qualify the success that each of these manufacturers had class victories, but they never had an outright success. And the manufacturer that competed in the most 1000s without an outright win has been Toyota with 28 starts. Um, behind them, uh, Alfa Romeo on 21 and Mazda on 18. So you'd say Mazda was the closest to win of those three because Moffat finished second in 83. He was a regular contender, third in 84, Mm. So he got close quite a few times in that Group C era, but Toyota traditionally was always running class cars with Corollas and 124 different Toyotas have taken part in the race over the years. You'd reckon that probably about 120 of those were uh, Corollas. The Supra was probably yeah. the only thing that was in the outright class for uh, Toyota at, at any stage. And that's uh, outright with an asterisk because it was never real. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was outright without being very outright, wasn't it? The mm. big uh, super turbo. It was pretty heavy and a bit of a beast. And on, on paper, it stacked. It looked pretty good, but it just never mm. equated into to performing terribly well. I want to mention quickly too, while we talk about cars, and I think of Toyotas, one of the Toyota Team Australia Corollas, I think it's the car that was uh, run there in 86 and 87, is at the National Motor Racing Museum. It's a permanent uh, part of the, uh, the exhibition there. Bit of an update for the museum at Mount Panorama. Of course, we sadly uh, can't be there this year. We normally run our Thursday night V8 Sleuth open night at the museum. We've had great nights in recent times with the likes of Brad Jones and, and Glenn Seaton. Uh, sadly, of course, this year we're on 
pause, but we look forward to getting back to that in, in future years at the mountain. If you go into the race, if you're part of that 8% who are going to be at the mountain for uh, the great race this year, the museum will be closed on race event days. So Thursday to Sunday, October 15 to 18 inclusive, it will be closed. It will, however, be open and there's the chance of some extended hours. Uh, check the National Motor Racing Museum Facebook page and the museum's Bathurst website for further details mm-hmm. of extended hours, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, the start of race week, and of course, Monday post and around that period. But due to COVID-19, the restrictions and the what's having to happen to have that event occur, uh, the museum sadly will, will have to be closed for those, those four days. Uh, but if you are in the area in the lead up or afterwards, it will be open. So certainly pop in and, and, and support the museum. They do an amazing job, the Bathurst Regional Council. They're adding to uh, the collections there all the time. There's all sorts of things. Dick Johnson exhibition on with some of his cars. There's some, some more cars and memorabilia to be joining the collection soon. So if you are heading to the mountain, uh, that is the scenario with the National Motor Racing Museum. Uh, another question. This is another good one, Will. This required a little bit of homework during the week. Graham Swan. What car, that is an individual chassis, has competed in the most Bathurst 1000s? It's a good one, isn't it? Because you look at the different eras of the race and there aren't too many big, long eras where the same car could have been competitive or, in fact, used for that matter. Like You look back to the series production era of the 60s and early 70s, cars were only really eligible for... Well, because they were, it was a showroom sort of relative, relevant, road relevant, I'll spit it out in a second. I knew what you meant. Yeah. I knew yeah. yeah. They were always racing the latest and greatest models. So you wouldn't get the car, same car rocking up to race three, four, five, six years in a row. Same really with Group C. Group A, however, mm. with the Corollas, the Corollas <laughs> had a really long race. There were lots of them and they stayed around for a lot of years. Much like the, um, much like on the road, you just can't kill them. So <laughs> the car that the individual chassis that had the most starts in about this 1000 was one of Bob Holden's Corollas. So it, it was actually one of the group A cars that was part of the 1984 race. So it lined up in the 84, 85, 86, 87, 88. Well, 87, keep going. was that the, the class winning car in 87, wasn't it? With the class winning car on the basis that it was the only one left. Doesn't matter. Doesn't but matter. It's a winner. A winner's a, win. a, win is a winner. A win. Correct. Um, it competed in every 1000 from 84 to 1993 because, of course, Corollas was still part of the class, even in the, or they had their own class in the early two days of the fight. The two lead class. Yep. Um, the only race in that sequence that it didn't actually start was in 1991. And that was when Mike Conway and Kelvin Gardner were driving it and it had a, uh, an engine failure. Uh, I think it was on the parade lap. So it got so close to being deemed a starter, but unfortunately it's not. So nine starts for that car in the Bathurst 1000. It, was, it started its life as a sprinter bought uh, by Bob Holden new from Bill Buckle Toyota. And of course, Bill Buckle, he's the bloke that brought the Gogo mobile into Australia and, and ran that, uh, was involved in the Toyota team in the 60s and um, but you can blame him for G-O, G-G-O, not the dart. <laughs> <laughs> not the dart. Uh, there are a couple of other cars that are in the mix but don't quite get to nine. Uh, the Tony Mulverhill Commodore VK Group A that debuted in 1985 with he and Barry Jones ended up making seven starts uh, last time in 1994 with Wayne Russell. Remember, it climbed the wall at turn two. Mm. Um, 
it was a Walkinshaw spec VL by then. So it started its life as a VK group A uh, and then was converted to a fuel injected car later on. So it made seven starts and the Golsons BMW 635. Remember that was like a Corolla. You just couldn't get rid of that thing. It kept <laughs> turning up every year. It made one start with JPS in 86 with Jim Richards and Tony Longhurst and six with the Golsons. So that got it seven, but it could have been eight, but it was a non-qualifier for the 88 race. Uh, of course, when we're in that period of, was it the Asia Pacific Touring Touring Championship. Championship and FISA and all those bun fights and a pile of cars weren't permitted to, to race in that race. So the answer, Graham, is a Bob Holden Corolla, nine starts in the race, uh, 1984 to 1993 uh, minus 1991. So, I mean, it, it, it went to Bathurst for the 1,010 times and it lined up and actually competed in the race nine times. Next question from Trent Ducat is, is Glenn Seaton the most unluckiest driver with no wins from his 26 starts at Bathurst? And if he is, who is the next unluckiest and what are their stats? Well, it's, I guess it depends on what you deem being unlucky. Hmm. I think if you look at it from the point of view, well, he did get to the podium, what, four times? Hmm. Well, three times. He didn't get to the podium in 87, but he got a podium finish down the track later on. But yeah. you know what he I mean? He got in the courtroom in Paris six yeah, months later. Yeah, yeah. Uh, two-time pole sitter, of course. Um, anytime we can put a plug in here. Oh, actually, while we think of it, Glenn Seaton, we, everyone would probably know that we're doing his book with him, the autobiography of Glenn Seaton. Stefan Bartholomeus from supercars.com has been doing an awesome job. We are about to go to print on that book. And we've brought the scheduling forward for that. We're printing it locally rather than offshore. So we will have it in time for Christmas. So if you're looking for a, a Christmas present from a Ford fan that you're definitely going to get in your hands um, well in time for Christmas to wrap under the tree, I've got to tell you, this Seaton book's coming together so well. It's 320 pages. It includes the car histories of all the Glenn Seaton racing and Ford Tickford racing cars. But Glenn has done a super job here with Stefan. He's opened up on so many things that I haven't heard him talk about or he's probably not stopped to, to think about for many, many years. The end result, Craig Fryers, who um, does a lot of design work with Heavy Duty magazine uh, and Supercars Extra and Survivor Car magazine, uh, we've engaged him to do this and he's, he's done a beautiful job. He has really nailed it. Lots of great photography that you've never seen before from our files majorly, but also some from around the place, including if you love the Ford Mondeo that he drove in 1993, that's in there as well. I don't think Glenn likes that car because it, it wasn't too kind to him. But just a little opportunity to, to let you know that the Glenn Seaton book, order it from our bookshop, uh, bookshop.v8salute.com.au. You will get it in time for Christmas. Now, is he the most unluckiest? Is he the best to not win? It's probably another little debate for another time. But Trent's right, 26 starts, no wins. The only other driver with that many starts and no wins is Bruce Stewart. 26 starts, best of fifth in 1988 with the late John Giddings in the Caltex uh, Ford Sierra. But Bruce Stewart was in class cars for many, many years in a very different era of the race. I'm not sure that unluckiest is the right term, but I think I understand that what Trent's saying. Mm. The most times that you go to not end up having a win, uh, Bruce Stewart. I think Brad Jones is only a couple behind that. Uh, but yeah, Bruce is the, the one on the list that's made the most starts alongside Glenn not to win it. And Bruce, of course, got three class wins in that period of his starts. Not yeah, an outright win, but three, three times he came home as the best in his class. Yep, absolutely. Uh, Daniel Ho Hopa? Ho Hopper? Hopper. Let's go with Hopa. 
Let's see. I read this question and thought, I'll be a no-hoper at answering this one. I need some help. <laughs> uh, what's the youngest combined age of a driver pairing? And conversely, what is the oldest? Now, the oldest is a bit too hard to do because we don't have birth dates of all the drivers from the 60s and early 70s. So that makes that one impossible to properly answer. Um, at the moment, anyway. At the we're moment, anyway. We're, we're, we're getting, getting there. there. We're getting there. We're searching births, deaths and marriages. Uh, we'll, we'll get a few extra ones. Uh, <laughs> bonus question. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's true. Uh, bonus question. Uh, they might not be the oldest pairing. Oh, sorry. Okay, let me start this again. Oh, let's, let's just break this down because this is too hard. What is the youngest combined age of a driver pairing? Well, the record will be broken this year if Nathan Hearn's permitted to run. But at the moment, he's not. He doesn't have a super license. But if, and even so, they haven't started the race yet. That's so. right. So if he and Tyler Everingham are to start the race, they will take the record because from memory, uh, their combined age is, I think, 36, 37? Yes. Something like that. Something like that. Nathan's 18 Hello. and Tyler's... 19. 19, I think. Yeah. Uh, the previous record was Jack Perkins and Shane Price, who were 20 and 19 in 2006 when they started. So uh, at the combined age of 39, there's a few drivers in this year's race who are older mm. than that combined age. And the most combined starts? Ah, this was a good one. Now, which combination has the most combined starts. And I thought mm. this year that uh, Wink Up and Lounds, they've got 44 between them, that that would be moving them right up the list. But you know what? They're actually not in the top couple on this list. No. Um, the one that's at the top of the list makes total sense when you hear it. It's from 2003. It's the combination that was in the number two Holden Racing Team cars, Jim Richards and Tony Longhurst. They had 51 previous combined <laughs> starts in the race that year. That's crazy. And, and everyone always forgets because it was comprehensively overshadowed in the top 10 shootout by Greg Murphy's Lack of the Gods. Richo put that car third in the shootout. I know, I know. Did the fastest lap of his life. 56 years of age. I know. And that's, you're right. The Murphy lap just blew everything into insignificance. But Richard's out-qualified Mark Scaife in the sister HRT car. He mm. was, what, 56 Hadn't done uh, a lap on a green tyre in a V8 supercar in about three years. <laughs> Probably longer, nearly. Yeah. Uh, it was stunning. And, and 50, what did he, fin he and Longhurst finished fourth that year, I think, off the top mm. of my head. Having that given was the son he, a nudge on the way. That was the year he gave Steve the hip and shoulder with a couple laps to go <laughs> down at turn one. Uh, Jimmy did talk about his time driving for the Holden Racing Team on our V8 Sleuth podcast we did with him last year. If you haven't listened to it, it's a bloody ripper. And he mm. tells a great story about racing with Alan Grice in Mexico too. If you've not heard that, uh, go to our podcast section on our website or Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and go back and have a listen to that one. It's no surprise that the next, um, the next few combos in the list all feature Lowndes and they're all recent. So Lowndes and Steve Richards in 18, when they won, they lined up on the grid with 49 previous Bathurst between them. Of course, they were 47 the previous year. And they were 45 the year before that. So they hold the next couple of spots. Scaife and Jim Richards in 02, they had 45 starts between them when they lined up and obviously went on to take the victory. But there's no combo. Now, we've got to pay some pretty awesome credit here. A guy that you probably, you've never heard him on the podcast. You might have seen his name mentioned or referenced in our, our world of V8 Sleuth over the last few years. And that's a guy, Shane Rogers, who works with us. He's built the database that so much of this stuff comes from 
uh, he, he's, he, he's kind of like the, the mechanic. He's adding to it constantly. He's tweaking it. He's tuning it. We're constantly asking him for uh, queries to run against the data and uh, extract elements from it. He was crucial in putting that Bathurst 12-hour book together mm. earlier in the year that we did that had the results of every race and the, the details for the photo of every car. And I just want to take a, a second that uh, Shane Rogers is our, our data guru. We don't know all these things off the top of our head. It's because he's built the system and uh, been able to plug a lot of the data in that we're able to, to do this stuff that I don't think there's anyone in the country that can do this stuff. Or if they did, they would need a lot of pieces of paper, a lot of pencils and a lot of time to be able to figure it out. <laughs> he is indeed our Ludo. He, he's our Ludo, but we can <laughs> understand him occasionally. Uh, the other thing he added when we asked him about this most experienced combinations question, he said that there's no combination with less than 12 previous starts combined has won the race since Tander and Bargwana won in 2000. That's interesting, isn't it? I look yeah. forward to um, running the ruler over this year's grid to see um, exactly who's, who is above that and who's below. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting one. And because one of my first thoughts was Wink Up and Lounge at 44 for this year, they must be high on the list, but they really weren't. But you look at the list and it's all recent in terms of the supercar era races, 03, 18, 17, 16, 02, 2020 with this year for Lounge and Wink Up. Mm. Yeah, Colin Bond and Bruce Stewart is the only one that pops up from the eighties 1989, they had 43 previous combined starts before they drove a Sierra together. So anyway, there's a bit of nerdiness for our, our sleuth faithful, which we know this time of year, you've got to wheel out all the Bathurst stuff because that's oh, yeah. what really matters. It's a great part of the history of the race. And it's in a way, I think because this year, probably 95% of people who uh, have had their normal Bathurst tradition change, whether you, you go to the race, whether you go to friends for a barbecue, whether you live locally, whether you do a road trip, uh, it's all changed this year. But we've had a lot of comments on social from a lot of people who have said it's not going to be the same. Even some people saying that I'm not going to watch it. Look, my view on all this is we're really lucky to have a super cheap auto Bathurst 1000 this year. Mm. The effort that, and I spoke on the phone this morning before we record this pod, we're, we're recording it a day before it airs, uh, to Adrian Burgess about another matter, head of motorsport at Supercars, former uh, head of uh, Holden Racing Team and Triple Eight and, and DJR. Um, and he, he said he hasn't even been on the road as much as more people, you know, and I think particularly the Melbourne-based teams, the, the guys and girls from Tickford Racing and Walkinshaw Andretti United and Team 18, they have kept this championship and the great race for this year on track without them we're stuffed we wouldn't have one we wouldn't have a television program to watch uh for the the previous rounds of everything that's been going on and we would have a gaping hole in the history of the great race if it wasn't for all those people and everyone at supercars and you know what they're not all perfect we're not all perfect things can be done better but i think given the the background i think they've done an amazingly good job to keep the champion to actually have a supercars championship this year at a time when uh we all probably stopped instead. And I really thought in April, May, that there wouldn't be a Bathurst 1000 this year. So things are looking good with what 18 days to go before the race roars into life. So it's an amazing effort by all concerned. So on behalf of us to the industry, thank you and well done to everyone to make sure that we can add another chapter to Bathurst 1000 history. We'll get back to the podcast in just a moment, but I wanted to quickly tell you about our good friends at Timken a world leader in engineered bearings and mechanical power transmission products and services. 
Now, you might know their name and you might recognise their logo, but did you know that Timken bearings are used in the centrepiece of one of the most stunning stadiums in the world of sport? The $2 billion, yes, billion dollar Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta features a retractable roof that is a work of incredible engineering. It features eight triangular roof panels, or pedals as the designers call them, that slide open and close in the same way that a camera shutter does. Each pedal weighs almost 500 metric tonnes and when the roof is closed, each pedal cantilevers over 60 metres from the outer edge of the stadium. Now despite the weight, the size and the complexity of the design, the roof can be closed in just over 7 minutes and open in just over 8 with Timken's tapered roller bearings used to ensure each petal moves smoothly. The stadium's home to the Atlanta Falcons NFL team and the Atlanta United Major League Soccer team, and in 2019, it hosted the crown jewel of American football, the Super Bowl. We'll bring you more cool facts about Timken in each episode of the V8 Sleuth podcast through the course of the year. Now, it's back to the podcast. 60th running of the race this year, which I don't think anyone stopped to consider, uh, we get smashed all the time about what's an anniversary, what's a running, what's a year, how many years. Well, count it this way. 1963 is the first. Yes, there were three great races at Phillip Island, but we count Bathurst from 63. Two races in 97, 98 with V8s and two litres. Therefore, this year is the 60th running of the race, which is a pretty cool thing. Chris Whelan, this is a good question. I considered <laughs> this for Castrol question of the week. It didn't quite get there, but it's a very good runner-up. Why is Bathurst not considered a street circuit as it's a normal road the rest of the times of the year? I've got a theory on this, Will. Go on. Think about it. Pit straight, mountain mm-hmm. straight, mm-hmm. L corner, Griffin's Bend, etc., etc. Skyline Dipper, the S's, Conrod Strait. None of them are called Conrod Street, Mountain <laughs> Street, Pit Street. There are no streets. There is Mount a pit street, just not at Mount Panorama. <laughs> That's right. But there are no streets, so we can't deem it a street circuit. Do you agree? <laughs> is it not called, um, is its technical name not Mount Panorama Scenic Drive? Correct. Correct. Um, I will say, <laughs> it is a very interesting point. I will say that there is a big difference between public roads that are closed off for a race and a racetrack that also happens to double as a public road. Very true. Uh, but... Chris, great question. Yeah. I, the other element is in our data, we distinguish between types of circuits because we can analyse team and driver form on street circuits versus permanent circuits. Uh, I count Bathurst as a permanent circuit in the way that we read that statistically. Yes, it's a public road open 350 days of the year or, or whatever it is, but it's not like Adelaide. I mean, it's, it's the characteristics of the circuit too for mine that – you know, Adelaide, it's the lines, it's the surface changes, it's the, it's all those elements. Townsville obviously has a permanent section, but a, a road course section. Uh, Gold Coast is streets. Newcastle has a little bit of purpose-built road, but is, you know, a lot of streets. Uh, so that's the other reason why I don't count Bathurst there, because it's very much a, a curated road, for want of a better term, for the purpose of a, of a racetrack that just doubles for getting around during the week? That's it. Like that 6.213 kilometres of tarmac has been designed with, as a racetrack in mind. You look at the cambers, 
of the corners, the way that the road's profiled, there's no crown in it like there you would see on a regular public road, the way the driveways are all set up and all the, like the big concrete walls that surround it. They're all things you wouldn't normally see as a feature of a circuit that is a genuine public street the other 363 days of the year. And we talked just before about paying credit to those who've kept the Supercars Championship on the road quite literally in 2020. We are forever indebted to Martin Griffin, the former mayor of Bathurst, to pull, pull the Swifty to get the funding for the public road, when really <laughs> it was a racetrack and he knew what he was up to. And, of course, since 1938, Mount Panorama has given us some awesome motor racing over the years. Cameron Bates, next question. In 1992, when Jim Richards got to Forest Elbow, one wheel was already wrecked hanging off the Nissan GDR. Where did he damage it? Now, that was at the cutting because he went straight on. Yeah. Was that on the exit of the cutting? Like the kink to the right? Because it was the front left wheel that was knocked out, wasn't it? Or was it the front uh, right? I can't remember now, but it was definitely the cutting. Yeah. Just sailed in there and uh, headbutted it and limped his way across the top. And by the Not time captured on the camera. Other. No, no. That's one of those momentous moments of Bathurst history. I mean, the momentous moment of the pack of assholes podium speech and crashing at the exit of the elbow. But what led to it was uh, his car. Obviously, he was stuck on slicks. But the damage that was caused to it uh, was at the cutting. So that, mm. that's what happened there, but we just didn't get to see it. Uh, Peter Alexander asks, and I think Peter's a big Ford fan just quietly, uh, <laughs> Moffat's last Bathurst drive in a Falcon came in 1980. Uh, what, ended up, what ended up happening, I should say, uh, to that car afterwards? So that car ended up racing throughout the rest of the Group C era in John English's hands. He purchased it and raced it. Um, in various colour schemes, probably its most memorable moment in John's hands when was it actually got out of his hands on the way down <laughs> through the S's in the 84 race and took a giant chunk of concrete uh, out of the, the wall. Was it the commentary line, oh boy, that's a big hole in the wall. Sure was. Was it Wilco? I think it was yeah, Wilco. Yeah, it sounds like the sort of thing Wilco would have said. <laughs> um, that, that car ended up in the Bowden family collection, in re- but in recent years has been sold to a private collector, I believe. Aha. Uh-huh. Might be a story to do somewhere down the track on that one. Mm. Uh, Tim Wittemans, this is a bit connected to the question earlier on. Which supercar chassis has done the most Bathurst 1000s? Yeah. So, again, this is the, um, this is the database and, of course, doing your, all your hard work over the years, um, recording where all the cars have gone, where all the cars have and where they've all been that allows us to answer questions like this. Uh, GMS 001, the very first Gibson Motorsport V8 supercar Commodore that was built brand new for the 93 season and raced at Bathurst that year for the first time with David Brabham and Anders Olofsson. And that gave David, David Brabham Rookie of the Year. I think they finished mm. fourth or fifth off the top of my head Correct. in the number two Winfield Commodore. And then it was sold. Uh, it didn't run in 94. It went oh. to... In fact, the reason why it didn't run was... Jim Richards crashed it at the Winfield Triple Challenge when I think he had a deflated tyre at the start of 94. And it was sold as a rolling shell to Scotty Taylor, who stuck with his VL for Bathurst that year and then put together the VP and got it back going again for 95. So the Xerox Commodore, as it became, it still was in that base red Winfield livery, uh, just that the white flashes sort of got changed for yellow it ran every year at Bathurst from 95 to 2000. It was updated to VR, VS spec later on. And they tried to go again in 2001, but they weren't fast enough. Didn't qualify, mm. but the car was permitted to run 
in the Conica Series 30 lap race on the Saturday afternoon, which was having its first run that year as a thing. So it got to seven starts. So it, it gets up in the list of the cars that we mentioned earlier. It gets to seven starts. It could have got to eight, but it's, a, it's equal second on the list all time. As far mm. as we know, uh, I can't imagine there's a car from the 60s or 70s that's going to bounce its way onto this list. But that's a pretty good effort from, from that car. And I reckon there's a candidate, that car, for Saturday sleuthing. Keen for it this week? I think you might be ahead of the game there. That may be a thing that might, may or may not I be I was happening. trying we'll not see. to make it look obvious, and you just outed me as uh, having something already on the go. Anyway. Look, look uh, we'll, all see, we'll all see this Saturday, won't we? That's true. That's true. Yeah. Good car. Good story. Yeah. Next question from Liam Briggs. Alan Moffat ran two Eggenberger Ford Sierras from 1988 to 1992, but in fact Moffat's first Sierra in 1987 was built by Andy Rouse. What happened to that car? Still parked down at turn one with a busted gearbox from memory. No, that car's had a long life. It it, it spent some time, I remember, as a left-hand drive car as well before being uh, converted back. So it's a right-hand drive. The Eggenberger cars, remember, were were left hookers. Uh, That car's in a Sydney private collection, and I understand it's being restored. It has been restored and in its ANZ Moffat Bathurst livery, but I think it hasn't quite been exactly period correct, so I think that's what's being undertaken with that car at the moment. Miles Healy. Uh, early in the V8 era, Miles remembers uh, Mercedes racing at Bathurst. Who ran it? Where was it from? And where is it now? Uh, it's very correct. That was the Phil Ward Technophone Mercedes, although it was Jamie Miller and Peter Mackay, and Peter McKay driving. Um, you might remember it from that race being stopped on the exit of the cutting in the early laps because the cabin had filled with water and turned the electrics off. <laughs> it's a good reason to do it. That's yeah, fair. It was a very wet start to the race. Because well, um, wasn't that the DTM car originally? Yes. That wasn't one of the Group A cars converted. No. So, of course, the 190E was a very popular car in German Touring Car Championship and went through several evolutions from starting with how we saw them over here in Group A spec with a tiny, with a small wing and small front spoiler to eventually having a massive rear wing and massive front spoilers and lowered and... Michael Schumacher actually raced one, come to think of it. Yeah, um, right. As part of when he was with the um, Mercedes Junior Young Driver program. Um, but yeah, that was an ex-DTM car that Wardy brought out here and converted to two-litre and raced it, I think, for half the 94 season. It did Bathurst and did the early races in 95 and then um, went off to the US and we believe is still over there. Yeah, I think it might still be over there. The North American Touring Car Championship for two-litre cars cranked up in 96. So I think this car and one of the ex-Group A cars ended up over there for some time. Well, maybe all three did. I, I can't remember, mm. to be honest with you. But uh, we'd have to check with our friends at the Super Touring Register website because they're the gurus of all of this stuff. But, yeah, last time we had heard anything, that DTM car, which was a DTM car converted to two-litre spec, which only one of its kind in the world. I don't know of anyone else who who did that. And that obviously became uh, the last Mercedes to race in the Bathurst 1000 from 94. Until 2013. Yeah. Until the, until the supercar uh, Erebus Mercs came along. So yeah, yeah, cool, cool part of little history there. spoke to Peter McKay. um, I I had your disease. Peter McKay. It's Peter McKay. McKay, Great journo, a guy who's been around so many years and, uh, um, we should get him on the podcast one day because he's got oh, plenty yes. of good stories. Plenty of good stories. Agreed. 
Next question from Nick Carter. What was the history on the 07 and 08 Bathurst winning cars? I know of the 06 car, which we actually recently did a Saturday sleuthing story on. Mm -hmm. Uh, What about the others and where are they? Uh, They are around. 2007 car, which was new for that race. I just watched it the other day, actually, on the Bathurst classics that you can get uh, on Foxtel when you go into the... I didn't know this on our IQ box. You can go in and go digging back through the sport catalogue and there's old Bathurst classics sitting there, two-hour highlights of some of the races. So I watched 07 the other day. It was was good fun. Uh, That car's with the Fiore family in WA. And speaking to Dino in recent times, that their, their plan is to put that back to... Uh, how it ran at Bathurst in 07, delivery, the Vodafone, Triple Eight, Lounds and Wink Up. Uh, 2008, the car that finished off the three, Pete, for Craig and Jamie, uh, that is with Rodney Jane, part of his car collection. I think it's been, uh, there's been work to put that back to its uh, Vodafone livery as well. So the good news is those three cars from the three, Pete, uh, are all still around, which is really good news. Uh, Dylan Olsen, who's had the most starts in the Bathurst 1000 without a podium finish. So I think we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, but there's another sort of element to it. For sure. So the answer is Bruce Stewart, who had no outright podium finishes across his 26 starts in the race. Of course, you mentioned his best was a fifth in 1988. Um, Next best is Graham Moore with 24 starts. And of course, Graham Moore, long-time privateer. If you remember the Holden Bathurst film of the 72 race that Peter Brock wins... That other, like, brightly coloured Serrano that was up there with Brock and Moffat in the early laps, that was Graham Moore. Yeah, uh, Norman Booth car, from mm. Yeah. And he's the guy that brought the williams Renault factory British touring car team to the, the 97 two-litre race. Uh, 24 starts, but best... Oh, well, he was there 25 times, but there was a non-start with a, a Mitsubishi Starion there in 1985, so that docked him of, of one. Mm. Uh, but best finish was seventh. In 86 with uh, Michelle Delcourt, so the following year in an ex-Holden dealer team, Commodore. But he finished eighth the next year with Delcourt when that car was the Strathfield Car Radio's car. So, yeah, 24 starts and uh, a best of seventh for Maury. So, uh, yeah, there's a few names here that uh, feature still quite prominently in the Bathurst 1000 stats list of, of most starts that obviously haven't started the race. I mean, Graham's last start was with Alan Jones in that Renault uh, mm. in 1997. So what, 23 years ago, and he's still right up there in the in the history books of, of most starts. Yeah, and I think um, a few of the people in the current field will have to keep racing at Bathurst for a long time to, ca- to catch up <laughs> these guys. I think you're right. Next question from Keenan Jones. Oh, I like this one. Given that any footage pre-1997 of the Bathurst 1000 is in the Channel 7 archives, does this mean that the new TV agreement will allow for an amazing Foxtel Bathurst channel come October 2021? It's a good question. I know why you like this as well. Uh, <laughs> we get a lot of comments about this stuff over time in terms of TV footage and rights and things like that. I don't think the new Channel 7 deal in them returning to covering supercars next year is an instant, therefore, this will happen and Channel 7 races will just magically now start appearing uh, on Foxtel as part of you know, um, a Bathurst channel or the dial-up, mm. um, not dial-up, I don't mean internet, I mean uh, on-demand sort of service Dreaming through your KO. IQ box. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't see that being a natural flow on. If that were to happen, that would have to be a separate commercial arrangement between Seven and, and Fox Sports and Foxtel for that to happen because I know uh, Seven really value and cherish, as they should, 
their Bathurst 1000 and Motorsport Archive. So I think uh, the only way that it would happen is if uh, there were some invoices being sent or I guess it opens up the possibility that if they're now both broadcasters of supercars, they're not so much in bed together, but they're on the same page dancing with supercars. So there might be the ability to offset different things to trade off to be able to have that happen more easily in the future. It makes the conversation a bit easier to start at the very least. True. Yeah. And you think, you think back to, as you were saying, the, um, it would have come with an invoice. You think back to the very first year of the Bathurst channel in 2015, when all those um, wonderful documentaries were put together. I think there were four separate documentaries Mm. that were put together in advance for that year's race that featured a lot of channel seven vision and a lot of old races from the seven era from which highlights highlights packages were cut together for that Bathurst channel. They didn't return for the following year because that was a one-off deal with seven. So to give an indication of how that worked. Yep. I worked on those docos. They came together pretty well. Sat down, did some, some cool interviews with some dudes over the time. The Thomas Mazira interview. You only heard a little bit of what he said in those ones, but I'd love to I heard the rest. Tape. You heard I the heard rest because you worked yeah. at Fox at the time. So, <laughs> it um, was good. Yeah, Thomas on the podcast in the future definitely has to happen. Jared Laws next up. A uh, few questions to go. Let's whiz through them. Uh, Glenn Seaton's had a few numbers throughout his career, but number 30 is the one that seems to be linked with him the most. He used it also in TCM and his son Aaron's used it in the Kumo series and in the Toyotas. So why the number changed to number five after the number one was peeled off at the end of 1998? We talked about the, the Glenn book earlier and the answer to this question, which I, I didn't know the answer to this question either. The answer to this is in the Glenn book. It is. Yeah. He, he explains it here because we asked him <laughs> and, and it's one of those things that you just don't stop to consider asking. So, well, look, I'm not going to do the whole buy the book to get the answer, mm. but you can buy the book and you will get more than just the answer. You'll get plenty of backstory to a lot of other things, but basic terms, it's his favorite number. Yeah. And he you was, look at his, yeah, you look at his birthday. He was born on May 5th, 5th of the 5th, 65. Yeah, of course, that makes sense. But for so many years, Peter Brock was racing with zero five. So having a number five as well as zero five wasn't going to happen. Uh, but once Peter retired, obviously from full time racing at the end of ninety seven, having a number five was able to happen again. So hence why the number five Ford Credit and then FTR Falcons and um, and then the number ended up, of course, as part of the sale of Glen Seaton Racing to Pro Drive, which became FPR. And hence the number five lives on at Tickford Racing to this day with Lee Holdsworth in the truck assist uh, Mustang GT. And eventually won a Bathurst with Mark Winterbottom and Steve Richards in 2013. Yeah, absolutely. Ten years after FPR had, uh, had made their debut. Hmm. Next question, Scott Allpress. What was the last year the lesser classes mixed with the serious stuff? I'm assuming 92 where they were killed off, where after they were killed off everything bar the V8s. 1994 was mm. the last year that we saw V8s and two litres together. Of course, the two litre cars had run as part of the Touring Car Championship the previous year. There was a class, everyone forgets, there was a two litre class in the 94 Championship, but Steve Ellery Sierra was the only one that ran at the first few rounds before the two litre separate series began. So they ran their two litre Valvoline Australian Manufacturers Championship as it was in 94. And then the two litre cars were a class for the Bathurst 1000. And of course, from 95, uh, no two-litre cars, support category for 96, and then the big split in 97 with 
two separate races. There were classes in the 98 two-litre race. I mean, we did see classes in the V8 races based upon tyres, open mm. tyres, a controlled tyre category for privateers. Yeah, special but, level one, yes. Yeah, all that stuff. But the last time that there was really different classes of cars as opposed to tyres was the 98 two-litre race because there were super tourers, the Schedule S New Zealand touring cars, which were a much more standard touring car that there was, I think, eight or nine or ten of those that came across and there was a smattering of um, production cars, Camry and some Mazda 626s that were in that race as well. So, but Which is the last time production cars raced in the great race. It is. It is. And I think some of those cars, I think that Camry is actually still around and some of those 626s are. Remember Grant Denyer talked about the 626s in the podcast that we did with him earlier in the year. But, yeah, to answer Scott's question, 1994, uh, the two-litre class was won by Paul Morris with Alfred Hagar in the mm. Diet Coke BMW that was air freighted out to Australia to replace the Diet Coke Commodore that was crashed in testing in the lead up to Bathurst. And they finished, I think off the top of my head, 10th overall, which for a two litre car at the time was a, was a pretty damn good performance. Hmm. Next question from Clint Tice. If you had a budget to produce a documentary or a movie on a Bathurst 1000 event, <laughs> where, are we getting, where are we getting this budget from, Will? This I want is, it. This is, this is hypothetical. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> unless, unless of course, anyone who's listening has a budget in that yep. case, you can contact us. Um, which year would you choose and why? And, of course, this includes the 500 Bathurst 500 races up to 72 and the two super touring Bathurst oh. 1000s. I have thought about this and I do have an answer, but I didn't know if you had an answer yet. I do have an answer and I think it's different to yours. Okay. You tell me yours. So, actually, being greedy, if you if you have enough budget to do one doco, why don't you do two? <laughs> um, so, I'd go with 1972. Okay. Or, and Why? or 1994. So 72 was just, it was the last year of serious production. So the last time that the cars that you could buy off showrooms, off the showroom floor legitimately were the ones that were on the grid at Bathurst. Uh, so you've got the whole supercar scare as a plot line throughout to wheel into it as well. You've got the rise of Peter Brock. You've got the whole Holden to Ford head to head. You've got awful awful weather conditions at the start of the race. The drama of that, uh, those early laps of Brock taking on Moffat head to head, which didn't, which when you think about it, didn't happen all that often at Bathurst. It was, wasn't that common that those two were in a head to head fight over all the years. There was 72, 73 to a lesser extent, 77. After that. Yeah, they weren't. There's not really... a lot of wheel to wheel stuff between. No, them. no. Well, Brock was in a race on his own there for quite a few years. Mm. Um, so that's why I'd go with 72. And 70 and 94 would be my other option because that the drama surrounding that race, when you just look at the fact that Brock had a $10,000 bonus that no one was particularly happy with, and even <laughs> less happy once there was the question of eligibility over his new Commodore nicknamed Beth. Um, the it was just an amazing race, start to finish. Like I, I personally still believe that stands up as probably the greatest great race of of all. So well, yeah, there's plenty of storylines. You, you've got the the Brock stuff, the controversy, the hundred grand to win, the suspension tower. Yes, hundred grand. Yeah, I yeah it was hundred grand. Yeah, yeah I was, don't short change. I was out by a factor of ten. Well, it was ten grand at ten to one to be able to do that, and. Mm. There was, of course, the tragedy in the lead-up with Don Watson being killed, so that put a real pall over uh, practice in the lead-up. Wet weather, the kid arrives, the kid 
you know, turns it on without even knowing he's turning it on in his fight with John Bauer. Uh, so there's plenty of elements. I'd go 1992. I know that Pack of Arseholes has been done to death, but the la- there was a lot of emotion. The return of the V8, Commodore and Falcon fight, Nissan and other Group A cars, the turbo cars being farewelled, the Denny Holm situation where he passed away, uh, the wet where There's just a lot of subplots and storylines that I reckon you could really flesh out. And the great part is that pretty much all the people are still around. Um, mm. Well, you think there was the threat of legal action in the lead-up to that race to yeah, allow the GTRs to run? Her, yeah, because of the weight that they were forced to carry, they, they threatened to pull out and not run at Bathurst because they said the weight would be too much on their, their tired old bones of the GDRs. And in the end, uh, they still managed to get up and, and get the victory. So, uh, But I'd, I'd go with 92. Probably a good chance to refresh the memory is that the 92 race is now out in full on DVD that we released earlier this year. So if you jump on our website, bookshop.v8sleuth.com.au, later in the year, the 1993 race in full will be uh, available on mm. DVD. So we'll let you know via our website and our socials when that comes out. Michael Gray, what is Aaron and Will's favourite Bathurst memory? Something personal, not something that you saw on TV. I have to pick, and I had to think about this because I've luckily been there for some good stuff. I think it's 94. So the race you just mentioned, I was a punter sitting late in the race on the exit of the chase. This is before the hotel was there, you know, blocking the view with a PA speaker just near us. It's, I guess what lap one thirty something, uh, or one forty, whenever it was that. So the thing was then we couldn't hear the commentary. So the only so Bow and Lowndes are fighting for the lead late in the race. Brock's crashed, so all the Holden fans are sitting there crying in their beer because they're stuffed because it's just some kid in the other car and he's not <laughs> going to threaten John Bow. And we don't know, sitting down at the bottom of Conrod, that Lowndes has taken the lead at Griffin's around the outside. No idea until about a minute forty later or whatever it is for them to come around and you didn't, you couldn't see the cars where we were sitting until they emerged out of the right hander of the chase. So under what was, I think then the Bridgestone bridge by that stage. And I'll never forget. I wrote about this in motorsport news many, many years ago, but it's just a personal thing that I remember so vividly that the Holden fans are seriously, I mean, this is before mobile phones, but it, it would have been at a time when they'd all pull their phone out and just start messaging their mates or, you know, uh, checking Facebook or seeing what the weather is because there's nothing else going on in the race that's going to keep them in, entertained and enthused. But through this all, you, you get a vibe as a fan at the track for how long it takes for the leaders to come around. So, you know, at the time, it's probably two minutes 15 or thereabouts at Bathurst in 94. So the, the wave of... Of course, there's a safety car to clean up Brock's car at the top of the mountain. Race restarts. We don't know that Lowndes has pulled this move at some point on bow. So the the first second that we know is because he comes out of the chase full beans. Look up the video. He's out of control. He's even (laughs) said it now. But I just have this vivid memory of him coming out of that right-hand kink too hard with the thing starting to crank sideways and the left rear tyre starting to move and slide and the feeling, it's like, you know, when you expect something and you don't get what you expected and it's this amazing surprise, that's what it was. So I feel 
that to the people that sat there that day that weren't watching on television, who didn't know that he'd arrived, he just arrived in Australian <laughs> racing, a minute 40, but we didn't know. The minute we knew was when the kid comes out of the chase with the thing cranking sideways in the effing lead, the <laughs> biggest race of the year, the punters go off their tits. It is the best crowd reaction I think I've ever been a part of at a motor racing event where the downtrodden fans who are going, this race is over, Bow's going to drive away. The kids in front, the roar was amazing. Like, I'm not putting the sauce on this. It will go with me till my dying day that to me, that's when the public went, holy shitballs, who's this kid? He's in the bloody lead. And you could see the place went nuts. Like, I'm not sure if the television broadcast accurately gives you the audio of the crowd. But for me, that is my favourite personal didn't see it on TV moment at Bathurst because in that moment for the, I don't know, 5,000 people that are in the vicinity, that's when they stood up and took notice of Craig Lowndes because he was in the lead and it was the greatest shock of our lives because we didn't know. We were just expecting yellow car, white car. But it was white car, yellow car. So everyone lost their minds. And for me, that's an amazingly memorable moment from what 26 years ago when I went on a a bus trip from Ballarat to Bathurst for the second year in a row and and saw that that was. And those few laps that he led were just amazing because you could see the energy. You're a big music man. You've been to plenty of concerts in your time and sporting events. You know, when everyone realises that they're seeing something special, it's yeah. getting them fizzed, it's getting them frothed up and excited. That was going on right there. And, I, you know, I'm getting frothed just talking about it because that's how it felt, not just for me as the race fan on the day, but for everyone standing around that we went from a dead rubber to fifth set Wimbledon final. We're going again, you know, like the, the kid's in it and it's, it's on. And, of course, it didn't last for much longer. What, another four or five laps he held him out for before that. Was it? it was a lap and a half. It was a lap and a half. Yeah, it, two laps. it not was even two. I don't think it was even two laps. It was it's it was much less time. I know when I went back and did the whole live blog at the '94 race a few years ago, I looked at the lap chart and thought, oh, right, he didn't leave well, that long. It was a loose couple of laps, like you said. He was sideways yeah, everywhere. Yeah, and but yeah, just him coming out of the chase and the crowd erupting when they realised that he was in front because they just didn't know, mm. uh, and it brought everyone's attention back to the race, and they were hanging off. Those last 20 laps, it was something really, really cool. Really, really cool. See, I don't have any stories like that because I've never been a spectator at Bathurst. So You've been a working member of the media or watching on television. Exactly. So all my memories of being at the track at Bathurst watching the race are actually probably in the um, Supercars Media bus. Any nice uh, lunches or catering that you, you recall being really good? <laughs> any highlights? Actually, <laughs> I laugh, but there actually was a massive highlight there. So in the 2016 race, if you think back to when um, the first half of that race was dull, it was so dull because there were no safety cars. Yeah. Everyone was saving fuel and the Red Bull cars were just checking in the 88 car in particular. Oh, this is the like race. The that first, I, I, I thought they were going to blitz this. But, well, they were blitzing it in the first half of the race. The race went 92 laps without a safety car period. The first 92 laps without a safety car period. And Jamie and Paul Dumbrell were up the, up the road miles away. I think they had between 30 and 40 seconds on the field at one point. Yeah, I remember that. Because they, yeah. 
They led, I'm just looking it up while we're talking, they led 133 laps mm. of 161 in 2016. Of course, they crossed the line first, but um, that post-race penalty put them back to 11th. But yeah, uh, yeah, I, I remember thinking this is a one-two, it's over. Yeah. So on about lap 87, there's a knock at the door at the media bus. And in is walked this big, massive order of Red Rooster. Oh, no! Nice. All the journos. Oh. <laughs> and coming, like I'm from a, I'm from Bowen in North Queensland. When I was growing up, Red Rooster was the only fast food in town. So, look, Fred, Red Rooster is a big deal to me. So that that sort of made that race for me. And of course, just as I'm starting to eat it, safety car. No, ah, I'm running a live blog for Fox, and um, yeah. It was a busy couple of minutes, but that, that was, that's, that's a um, food related highlight from the, from a Bathurst 1000. Um, other highlights, um, the 2014 race on Friday afternoon during qualifying after Jamie crashed, Jamie Wincup crashed um, at the cutting. Um, I remember again from live blogging, running down the pit lane alongside Tom Howard as we were running to take a photo of the car after it got back to the paddock for our respective live blogs. I remember that quite clearly. That was a nice memory. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't actually have any clear memories of races. I've, I've seen basically no on-track action physically with my own eyes in the Bathurst 1000. The only times I've seen it, uh, the closing lap to the race, I think in 18, I went and watched the finish because I wanted to see Lowndes cross, actually cross the line because I hadn't, hadn't seen that before. And I thought that would... And, you never know when it's going to be mm. someone's last win. So I thought that'd be yep. nice. Um, and the closing laps of last year's race, when I saw the number 17 Mustang come across the line first and watching the podium play out, and that was nice as a long-term DJR fan. So the moral of the story is that when there's the next Bathurst 1000 that we're going to physically go to, you're going to pull a week's holidays and go <laughs> and drink beers at the top of the mountain, correct? The slab is already buried, let's say. <laughs> hey, how many slabs do you reckon are buried up there from previous years that people have forgotten? <laughs> They'll keep too. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, there's, <laughs> there's someone who's going to end up with a real bounty there one day. That is an archaeological dig waiting to happen. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Be about a sl- 10 slabs of KB's t- KB toots. <laughs> Old school BB's West Ends from the 87 race. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Now you're taking me back. Right, we've got five <laughs> questions to go. Let's plough through them. This podcast is our Bathurst Q&A podcast. A big thank you again to our mates at Timken, the world leader in engineered bearings and mechanical power transmission products and services for keeping us on the straight and narrow. And the other good news is that we did a podcast recently on the restoration of the Peter Brock Mark Scaife 97 Bathurst car Timken bearings are being used in the restoration of that car. See, we lead and others follow. Ben Eggleston and the crew there are, are all over the Timken. They've sent us the photo of all the Timken boxes, the bearings. They're going in everywhere. They were used originally by the team in 96 and 97 when that car uh, ran in diffs and all sorts of stuff. So uh, Timken bearings being part of the restoration of, of Brocky's Commodore from Bathurst 97. I just wanted to slip that in there. John O'Bikoff. Former V8 driver of all things Super 2 and a little bit of Super 3 back in the day. Um, good question. Who has the most Bathurst 1000 starts that wasn't born in Australia or New Zealand? Now, he's offered up Thomas Mazir and John Cleland as some potential answers, but they aren't going to get in the mix here with this one. <laughs> it's someone you absolutely wouldn't expect, and then you hear it and you go, oh, of course. 
It's Russell Ingle. He was born in England. Yeah. And, of course, he made 25 starts in the great race. So um, he wins. He wins uh, by the very wording of the question. The wording Mm. was, who wasn't born in Australia or New Zealand? But I get the spirit of the question. Uh, Mm. So to answer that, John Cleland had 12 starts in the Bathurst 1000, which is an impressive number. I think that's the best of any bona fide international driver rather than uh, not counting Kiwis either as well. So Sure. And to just to cover that off, Mazera made 18 starts. The um, Canadian-born Alan Moffat made 19 starts, but I believe they were both, like, I know Moffat was naturalised or has Australian citizenship, and I'm assuming Thomas probably does now as well. Uh, I'd say so. I'd say yeah. so. I think so. Um, Brad Vereker, what chassis is the newest and the oldest that will be in the Bathurst 1000 this year? Good question. Love a chassis question. Mm. Well, the newest is, well, there's a bunch of cars that debuted at Adelaide this year. So they've never competed in a, a Bathurst 1000 before. So Nick Perkett's Brad Jones, number eight, uh, Dave Reynolds, Erebus, number nine, Rick Kelly's 15 Mustang, Chaz Mostert's 25 car, which, by the way, is up for auction as per all the Walkinshaw Andretti United cars of recent years. Uh, there's a story on our website relating to that if you want to check it out, but it's not available to get until the end of next year. But it's not a bad idea because the auction closes uh, Bathurst week before the race. So what if he goes and wins Bathurst this year and or next year? You might get a Bathurst winning car for not a Bathurst winning car price. It's not a bad way to go about it. Really is. Very yeah. smart. Inve- could potentially be a very smart investment. Yeah, it could be. Uh, don't worry. I don't have enough to, to put in a bid. I'll... I'll yeah, no, I need to keep eating. Uh, the yeah. other uh, car debut new this year was Van Gisbergen's 97 car at the Adelaide 500. So they're all the newest cars for want of a, a better term. There are a few other chassis that didn't race at Bathurst last year that have been debuted since last year's Bathurst. Anton Di Pasquale's car was new for the Gold Coast after his big shunt at Bathurst. And, of course, Scotty McLaughlin towered up that Mustang, the Bathurst winning car, on the Gold Coast. So um, a new car for him at Sandown, which is the championship winning car this year. But... In terms of the oldest, there's probably two ways to look at this, Will. I'd look at it from the point of view of the oldest in terms of the oldest to have debuted, mm. and that's the number 34 Matt Stone car, which is an X888 Lounge car that debuted at Sandown in 2014. But it's not the oldest in terms of the most races done, though, is it? No, and the car that, the car that ticks this box is actually a car that... Um, we all believed it was written off at the we end of last year and wasn't coming back. We, uh, it had everything but a death certificate on the Gold Coast yeah. last year. But alas, the number 55 Tickford Mustang that Chas Mostert put into the wall at the shootout at Gold Coast last year is back in Jack LeBrock's hands for this year, was rebuilt progressively over the summer, and of course is a race winner again. Yeah, with LeBrock at Sydney Motorsport Park. But it was new in 2016 in Adelaide for Chas as a Falcon. Of course, it's been converted to a Mustang. It's been repaired after that big crash that you mentioned. It's done 137 championship races. It, it's mm. time for retirement. Surely that thing <laughs> deserves a rocking chair and a, a nice cup of tea and a blanket somewhere. Well, it illustrates the age of that car. That was built to replace the car that Chaz crashed at Bathurst the previous exactly. year. Exactly. Where sure he was. hurt himself quite badly. Yep, that's the one. Uh, next question from Tim Woodermans. What is the most successful Bathurst chassis? Uh, there's actually equal two for this is there not the there is yeah the car that won the 82 and 1983 races the holden deal team commodore that was 05 and 82 for brock and larry perkins and 25 for 
John Harvey, Peter Brock, and Larry Perkins, but not Phil Brock in 83. And Golden Child, the Mark Scaife Holden Racing Team Commodore that won the race in 2001 with Tony Longhurst and then backed up and won it again in 2002 with Jim Richards. Both worth quite a bit, those two cars, I would have thought. They'd be two mm. special cars to, to have in the collection. Kieran Andrew, what was the deal with the Gary Bar? Not the Larry Bar, the Gary <laughs> Bar that was in the VY GRM Commodore that Garth Tanner and Jamie Winkup shared at Bathurst in 2003. Now, everyone remembers the Larry Bar, the horizontal windscreen brace bar, but GRM went a step further and put another one in. They, they turned it into an X-Commodore. <laughs> yeah, two bars in the shape of an X across the windscreen. Who would have thought? Who would have thought that was a good idea? That must have been a nightmare to look through. Uh, didn't Tander talk about this on the podcast I did with him last year from memory? Yeah, he mentioned the fact that the car wasn't painted inside to save weight, so it kept rusting. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, tetanus shots all around for the GRM boys. It was. And while the Larry Bar was initially frowned upon, it was permitted in the end, and every other team bolted one into their car. Hmm. That was in 2000, and GRM put this into their car in, I think it was for Bathurst or Sandown around that time, 03, but it, it, they had to cut it out. So it went back to the regular Larry Bar, single bar, for the following year when Cam McConville raced that car, which he won at Winton in that car the next year. Mm. So there you go. Last question from Carl Phillips. This is a rip snorter. <laughs> how many times has a team paired, that is, how many times has there been two drivers with the same name in the same car at the Bathurst 1000? Now, Carl alludes to our quiz because one of our questions relates to the fact that Jack Perkins and Jack Smith are driving together this year. So he was keen to know how many times a Bathurst car has had two guys with the same name drive it. And of course, we went to the database and the answer is 41 times. It's more than I would have thought. Yeah. Uh, most recent was Alex Davison and Alex Rulo in 2017. Yep. Prior to that, we had James Moffat and James Golding in 2016. And that was the last time there were two instances of that in one race. Oh, sorry. The last time there were two instances of two driver lineups with the same, same um, Christian same name, Christian name, was back in '98 when we had the two Darrens, Darren Hossack and Darren Pate, in one of the Wins Wins Gibson Motorsport Commodores, and Shane Bykoff and Shane Crookshank in their Commodore. Ah, uh, yes, their Commodore we'll, or Falcon. Uh, they were in a Commodore that yeah. year, actually. I'll take you that, but I'll raise you 1987. <laughs> Four of them were in the race: the Klauses, Ludwig, and Needswitz. Yeah. Peter Brock and Peter McLeod, of course, the winners. Peter Fitzgerald and Peter Jansen in the car that Peter McLeod owned. And Gary <laughs> Cook and Gary Sprague in a Commodore. So four instances in the one race of cars with the same first name uh, with their drivers. However, so, two of those cars had three drivers. Yeah. But, as I'm pretty yeah. sure his name isn't Peter Parsons. You only need or, two. You only need Gary two. Cullen. You only need two. That's all you need. That's all you need. <laughs> So, yeah, it's one of those quirks of, of Bathurst history, and it doesn't happen very often. I mean, you look back through it, 17, 2016, 07 was Paul Umbrell and Paul Wheel, 05, Paul Morris, Paul Radisic, 03, Mark Noski and Winterbottom, 2000, Gary Holt, Gary Wilmington. So in, in 20 years, uh, we've only had six times that it's happened, uh, and we'll have seven with Jack Perkins and Jack Smith teaming up in the number four uh, SCT Logistics Brad Jones Racing Commodore on October 18. Jack continues his Bathurst streak. He's been in every race since 06 and he's been to every race 
since he was, uh, what, two months old or thereabouts, mm. three months 86. old in, in 1986. Yeah. So he's got an amazing record that he gets to keep ticking along this year. So we'll run the ruler over the full list of drivers and cars in the race um, next week on the podcast. But we've covered some serious ground there. Thanks, everyone, for sending in your questions. It's had our uh, database working really hard. Shane Rogers' keyboard uh, is on long service leave now because it's been doing... <laughs> Plenty of work in the last six days looking up some of the answers here. Uh, that's one of the things I think we love most about V8 Sleuth and the, the following we've built, the podcast, the, the website, the, the social media engagement. We get asked a lot of really great questions. Uh, we've got a lot of learned fans who follow the sport closely, who are passionate and knowledgeable. That's the following we want. Um, occasionally it, it morphs on socials into a a Holden and Ford bitch slapping session between people which we we like energy we like fun but we, we don't like some of the other crap that goes on, on social media so we will delete it hide it or get rid of it and um, you can go somewhere else with all that but we really appreciate the great questions and insight into the sport that so many of our our fans have got episode 71 will is this episode coming to a close I think of the Toyota Team Australia Corollas when I think of 71 I've got Corollas on the brain after that question earlier on <laughs> in the podcast uh next week we will run our ruler over the full field in the super cheap auto Bathurst 1000 uh plenty of time still to enter the quiz uh entries don't close until friday october the 9th we'll announce the winners in our uh, episode the week of the race on october 14 so jump on the website fill in the form if you don't have the questions uh click back and have a listen to episode 70 of the podcast to make sure that you've got all the questions and we will find out if you've got all the answers uh you're not allowed to enter, are you? You haven't entered? You sure? Um, to your knowledge, I haven't entered. Uh, okay. Pseudonym, hotmail <laughs> address. Okay, I'll keep an eye on that. Anyway, thanks again, everyone. I uh, hope you've enjoyed our Bathurst Q&A episode. We'll join you again in seven days' time when we run the ruler over the field for the 2020 Super Cheap Auto Bathurst 1000. We'll talk to you then. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number 2, and oil, and find out.